welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 45 of the Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is the absolutely incredible Bethany Rose and Bethany is a poet, an author and an educator. She's also a TEDx speaker and you might know her from her TEDx talk, you might know her from a nationwide advert that she was in that's on the telly a lot, you might know her from her poem Pink which was on BBC Three and went viral and has been viewed at the last count over five million times um or you might know because she wrote a book called neon and that's really good too and you might not know her at all and in which case you're in for an absolute treat um i think this is one of my favorite episodes that i've done if not my favorite episode it's really really cool beth is just lovely really really lovely and this conversation goes absolutely everywhere if you're one of those people that likes your podcast to start at the very beginning and work their way through this might not be for you it goes all over the place and we talk about depression and mental health we talk about sexual identity we talk about um, the spoken word poetry scene we talk about Beth's work with young people we talk about the TEDx talk we talk about vulnerability you name it we talk about it and we do a lot of quite dark stuff but also have a laugh it's definitely the most i've laughed on a podcast for sure it was a lot of fun um i'd highly recommend going and watching Beth's ted talk it's called breaking out of concrete and i've put a link in the episode notes and yeah it's wonderful i think it's one of my favorite teds to be honest the first time i watch it i got such strong goosebumps and i've watched it crikey it must be double figures since in the prep for this and just because I like watching it and each time I've watched it I've got goosebumps again the same and you know like goosebumps they normally diminish over time (laughs) but Beth's talk is so powerful so inspiring that um, yeah every single time man it's like it's absolutely brilliant and if you'd like to know a bit more about her you can find her on instagram at bethany underscore rose underscore poetry or you can go to www.bethanyrosepoetry.com um if you'd like to connect with me at proper mental podcast on all the platforms Instagram's probably your best bet you can go to my website www.propermentalpod. <laughs> I always get that bit wrong. www.propermentalpodcast.com. Um, if you'd like to buy me a virtual coffee, you can go to buymeacoffee.com/propermental, and buy me a coffee is just a way for you to donate a few quid to keep the podcast ticking over. Basically, every time someone buys me a coffee, um, it just goes into an account, and that keeps like the podcast hosting and my Canva account for making the graphics and for Zoom and all that sort of stuff. That's what it pays for. So it's not coming out my own pocket as much. And a massive thank you because I hadn't had a coffee for ages and this week I had like five or six. So a huge thank you to everyone who's supported. Um, The other thing I need you to do, of course, is like, subscribe, download, all that stuff. And if you could leave me a review 
it would be fantastic. Um, that's how I get Apple to show my podcast to people. That's how I get into more people's ears. That's how more people can hear Proper Mental is purely by reviews and downloads and subscribes. So if you'd like to do some of that for me, it'd be very, very much appreciated. So here we go. I think that's everything I need to tell you. Let's just jump straight in to Proper Mental episode 45. As I said that, you could hear a firework in the background. It's like celebrating the start of the episode. How sick is that? Proper Mental episode 45 with Bethany Rose. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Let's talk about this in the thing. This is good. In, this indeed. Is good. Right. Okay. So I'll do I'll do like a little one-line intro and we'll just jump straight in and go from there, mate. Perfect. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Bethany Rose. How are you, mate? Hi, I'm really good. How are you? I'm really good, mate. Really, really good. Thank you for joining me, Beth. I really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. I've just moved um about four weeks ago. I just moved to Scotland. So I really am like, this is my first thing I've done since being up here. And it's actually really nice because I've just suddenly like woken up in the middle of nowhere thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> um, and um, everyone keeps telling me that it's going to be really cold up here. But so, so I love the cold because I'm ginger. But so far it's been warm, which has been disappointing for me because also I've got a thing about warm weather. Because I feel like if the weather is more cheerful than I am, I feel pressured to perform. Do you know what? I was having a very similar conversation with someone recently. Working. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that in the summer, like when it's a sunny day, it's like, oh, I have to like go and do all this stuff and make the most out of the long day and go to the beach and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I'm I have a... to go for a barbecue. I don't even eat oh. meat. And I have to wear <laughs> a bikini and laugh. I don't, I don't laugh. I don't yeah. wear bikinis. This is not who I am. <laughs> That's it, it exactly. Yeah, me. yeah. But in your it, when it's in the in the autumn, the winter. I love the autumn, mate. And when it's like this time of year, and you get a surprise day, then it's always a sunny day, and it's always like a really nice treat. But in the summer, if you get a surprise day, it's like a really crappy day that probably ruins something. So yeah. I quite like that element it's of it. Just as well. another horrible day where you sickeningly are reminded that global warming is happening <laughs> yeah. um, and the world's burning down, but you still got to go to your job because you've got a mortgage. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> so whereabouts in Scotland are you, Beth? We just moved to Aberdeen. Right. Um, okay. Oh, oh, I said we. I don't think I've ever done that before. I'm so sorry. How disgusting. I moved to Aberdeen with my partner. She got a job up here um, at uh, the university. And I've been in London for um, when I moved there when I was 22. And I'm 34 now. And I moved because I wanted to get into spoken word. I wanted to write a book. And I wanted to perform. And I was really lucky enough to be able to do all the things that I wanted to do. I got really unwell uh, about two and a half years ago and things really changed for me because as soon as I started healing, we went into lockdown. Um, and I think the whole, it made me feel a lot more comfortable about leaving London. I think partly because I'd been so ill, I can't imagine now working full time and performing and doing all the things that I did, that kind of crazy, chaotic London lifestyle. But also the pandemic changed things, you know, so a lot of work I can do now 
um, you know, like this, like we're talking on the phone or I can do remote filming or I did an advert for, for Nationwide in February that I, I filmed myself in my living room. Wow. You know, and I think that gave me a lot more confidence in because I was quite worried that I was going to come up here. So basically, I'm a bit like a trophy wife without the hotness. I'm just a, like and we're not even married, actually. So what am I? Who am I? So just like I just rattle around this house. And also because we we're so used to London, we can only afford a little flat in London. And here it's got us this like ginormous 18th century house with a big garden. And I've got a dishwasher. And the other day I had a workman come to fix a door. It's like, who am I? I felt like I was in Desperate Housewives or something. <laughs> and everyone says, my mum, like my mum's like, oh, you must be so bored, darling. And I'm thinking, I have not been bored once. I am in bliss. I absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, I was worried because I was worried that, um, you know, that I'd be isolated or cut off. But then I think because we all had to survive COVID being isolated and cut off, I think it taught us a lot about our own resilience. I don't know how you feel about that. but Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Yeah, um, I just kind of, I, I feel like our experiences with mental health almost overlap, right? So as you were getting better, I was getting sicker when we look at the timeline. Because um, lockdown for me was amazing. Like for all those reasons, the world stopped and I got to examine my life and I got to, I, I, I remember being in my kitchen and having this moment of just like true happiness, you know? Uh, and it was really, I'd not felt like that for absolute years. And then lockdown finished and the world went back to normal and I jumped straight back into my old life and realized how much I didn't like it. And um, that was a real, real problem for really, me. That's terrifying because actually most of, most of my life, I thought that there was something wrong with me and I just wasn't getting it. And then I realized that actually it's because I'm so soft and you know sensitive and I am kind and I am thoughtful and you know the normal world just is just too bloody brutal for me and that that is just how I have to be mindful of how I consume news all of those kinds of things as well but I think like actually you know was I clinically depressed for 10 years or was I quite depressed but also completely burnt out and overwhelmed on top of that you know and I just I think as well, like a lot of my friends really struggled in lockdown. The really successful friends, you know, that are like uh, surgeons and lawyers and because they're really defined by what they do. Whereas I feel like when you've suffered with mental health issues your whole life, especially like if it's chronic, you have to learn to be defined by what you are, not what you do. Because a lot of the time you can't do anything because you're too ill, you're too sad. Um, and, you know, I have one of my friends said, what do you do when you're not at work all day? How do you get through that day? And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, like. And of course, because she would just always go in, into work and and society uh, really rewards that kind of behaviour because it feeds into capitalist values as well. It's like, oh, I'm a bit upset or I'm a bit sad. Never mind. Head down. I'll just go and get on with it, go to work and everything, which is great. I wish I mean, I wish I could be like that, but I can't because I'm like crying over a leaf on the floor. Um, but um, yeah, I think. Um, I think I thought that I'd never be able to go and move anywhere else or do anything like that. And then me and my partner in, in lockdown, we were just like, had such a lovely time. We felt like a little retired couple. We felt like um, Claire Balding and Alice Arnold, you know, um, on Bogglebox. <laughs> we're basically like that. And then we just sort of like, I just sort of felt like I was living a retired life, age 32. And obviously, like, I was going through hell with my health and... um previously and also of course I felt so awful for so many people it's been such a terrible thing and I don't want to make light of that at all because I understand how profoundly it's impacted and hurt people you know we lost Dean in our community which was just so sad and I think you know I don't want to like gloss over that in any way but I'm just saying in terms of 
you know, my own personal experience of it, which I found quite common amongst poets, creatives, thinkers, we felt like for the first time we could breathe. Mm. We could actually like, I don't know you. And also I'm really resilient. Like I've been on my knees with depression most of my life. So you say to me, do you know what, Beth, you can't go out now for three months. I'm like, okay, I can hold that. I can deal with that. And I was so proud of myself of how strong I was, but I didn't realize because all the things that I'm strong at are not really what society thinks is strength, but turns out to be these incredible skill set in the pandemic. Like, okay, can you do isolation? Yes, I can. I've been isolated since I was four. Can you, um, can you spend long periods of time not seeing anybody with no structure? Yes, I can. Can you um, give up everything you've ever known and be uncertain about the future? Doing it already. Um, you know, so it was just, it was a real revelation. And I was quite proud of how I got through it. And I was like, yeah, I do have some skills, soft skills, but I do have some skills. And I think, um, yeah, I think that, um, I think that it was strange for me because as soon as I was getting better and I was really off grid, I was really ill. It's the illest I've ever, ever been, like nearly died. And as soon as I started getting better, within about two weeks of, of being really unwell for a year, we went into lockdown. So do you feel like I, I lost like a significant period of my life to just watching like Bob's Burgers in a dressing gown? For, like, <laughs> yeah. Two years, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a really wonderful way to put it, though, because I, I really relate to that. I felt like when lockdown, it, once I got used to it, once I realised that, um, you know, we weren't, it wasn't going to be like The Walking Dead, you know, like, because that's how it kind of felt at first. Yeah, but once I kind of yeah. got the initial two weeks, um, I felt like yeah, I'd been prepping for it my whole life. That's how I, I felt. I was like, oh, I'm ready for this. Like, I've never felt like I fitted, but now I fit, you know, yeah. it was, uh, and I can't, yeah, really I can't even go to like, um, a nightclub or a bar. I don't even have to practice good boundaries because we're literally not allowed to go out. I felt like Boris Johnson was like my like awful parent telling me you can't go out young lady. Um, and I was like, brilliant. Like he could take responsibility for, for the fact that I can't go to people's houses or baby showers or, and I just felt like, Oh my God, this is the pace of life that I've always wanted. Basically, I just it just it took a whole pandemic for me to work out that I'm basically just a lazy daydreamer. Yeah, that's it. That's perfect. And like, it, I think we're going to find out so much about ourselves and about society as the years go by. You know, once the the immediate worries about um, like health and money in particular are kind of like past, then there's going to be so much, I think, to come out of this time. It's going to be a really like profound time for stuff like that, isn't it? It's, um, yeah. We're going to learn. We're going to learn a lot. Yeah. Lessons from lockdown is a book waiting to be uh, waiting to be written by by someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me maybe maybe who uh who knows yeah um what i'd like to do beth is just rewind a little bit um just before you get in poorly and i would like to talk about when the when creativity came into your life like when did you discover a, a love of of words and doing um interesting things with those words and expressing yourself in that you know through poetry and through art and through those sorts of things um, I think I'd love to tell you like a really beautiful story, but I actually think it's because I'm a maladaptive daydreamer. So it's like um, daydreaming is my like uh, dopamine, my cocaine, my serotonin, whatever you want to call it. Like I can go into a daydream and I've been doing it since I was four or five as a coping mechanism, you know, so, so much so that my partner shall come in and say to me, are you okay, darling? How long do you need to finish it? Because I'll be staring at a wall. And I say, okay, um, I think nine minutes left of the daydream because I've literally got like a selection of like seven that I go into. 
And um, I'm not as crazy as you think. Like I am, um, I watch the same movies. I watch the same television programs over and over again. I listen to the same 10 songs and always have done. Um, I like repetition a lot and I'm very tidy and I have OCD and I think I've got a thing about tidying. And I remember when I was younger, I used to have Polly Pockets and those little dollies that are in a shell. And I used to line them up, get them all out. And then I used to sit in the middle of them, close my eyes, take a deep breath, dream of playing with them and then write up what I had dreamed. But I'd never actually touch them. So I don't like making a mess. Right. So I think, I think, um, and I think for me, I find life very messy. It makes me incredibly anxious. And I think putting stuff into rhyme and writing tidies it up, basically. So it's like me being um, OCD about words. It's, it's me like arranging them to metrics and lines and making them sing and work for me. Um, and so I think I was just always drawn to, I have a twin who's like the opposite, really scientific, really logical. So I feel like maybe we were given our labels, the creative one and then the logical one. So maybe I followed it because of that. But I think um, I've always been, um, I've just always been a bit of a sad girl. And I think when you're sad, especially pre-internet, you know, like there wasn't, when you were bored, I remember I was being really bored in the summer holidays. I do a poem about it. I remember kicking a Coke can around for like three weeks, you know, and like being really happy with that and like set, making a fake like tennis net in the road or whatever. But like we were so, I, I had a lovely, lovely family and, but, but we were so bored. And that's, I think, where creativity, the real, like, beautiful creativity comes from boredom. Because I think it's where your mind goes once you've almost driven yourself to the brink of, I, ca I can't explain it, but what I have to say is I've noticed I'm much less creative and have much less output now that I have a smartphone. That makes Massive. a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, definitely. Yeah, and I think because I'm not bored and... You know, in this poem, I say I miss, you know, I used to flip the tabs on a Coke can, count how many green cars you could see on the motorway, how long we could hold our breath for, all of these things, because you're just, you're so bored, you're like almost desperately searching for a dopamine hit. And so I used to, you know, if I, if I couldn't go somewhere I wanted to go for the day, I would make it, I'd write it, and then I'd go in it there, I'd make tiny people on on the floor with chalk, and they would be my friends, or I'd make my toys come to life, or because that was that was all you could do. So I suppose I worry now if I was born tomorrow into this, into this world, you know, and I teach as well. And I see these young people with their phones and no way would I be creative. I would definitely have a little Insta account where I like tried out lip glosses 100%. I would have loved it as well because it's tidy. You put your things in a grid and I would, but I never would have started writing. I think, yeah, I started writing because I'm a daydreamer. I was sad. And I was very lonely and I really struggled to make friends. I was really bullied. So I made my own, I think. That was kind of basically just like a delusional fantasist, I would say, is the source of my creativity. What about you? Yeah, well, I, th I think there's a lot to be said for being bored. Yeah, a lot to be said for um, for being bored. You know, we, we've like we chatted before about my kids and, you know, quite often if they come and say, oh, like I'm bored, we don't rush to find them anything to do. It's like sit in it. Because yeah. it is so many people just can't, you know, just can't sit in it, can't relax in it, can't, um, yeah, sit with, sit with themselves. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of, by letting everything slow down and giving your mind space, I think, to do its thing. Because we're, we're like innately creative pe people, like humans as a species in general. Yeah. I think everyone is, um, we tend to, as soon as someone says creativity, we think it's got to be like writing, drawing, music. That's it. But you can create yeah. lo loads of stuff. But it could right? be like how you garden, how you build a home, how you bring people together, how you bake, how you, it can be anything. It's just, 
Yeah. yeah. It also, it also yeah. doesn't have to be good. That's another mistake I think we make is that, you know, we think you've got to create something. It's got to be like a masterpiece. And it's like, well, no, it's not. And if you're going to do, eventually do a masterpiece, you're going to have to make a lot of rubbish before you get to that point but as well. Also, I think this is a trap because then you might make a masterpiece, right? And everyone loves your masterpiece and thinks that you're an amazing master. And then you can't ever do anything for fun ever again because right, yeah, everyone yeah. expects it to be beautiful and you're like oh god I was not expecting this at all and I think that's a massive thing and I think I noticed this in the summer I went to play rounders with um my with um uh my uh girlfriend's work team and I'm not very good at rounders right but like I have to either be the best or the worst I can't be average either so like I'll make a real tip of myself like being the worst you know like almost like farcical like I don't like fall over or anything like that but like I probably would if I if I had the chance but I think it's this strange thing of being like I am so unwilling to be forgettable because that's my that's my like core fear I think um is that like not not that I'm forgettable is that like that people were never interested in the first place so I think everyone's got something it's like it's loneliness or mine is I I I'm a real people pleaser and I'm scared of being boring and everyone talks about fight and flight, don't they? And I, mm. also, I always talk about fawn because that's my trauma response. If someone hates me, I will do everything I can to try and get them to love me, which, which I thought was a lovely quality, but after years of therapy, I now realize it's manipulative. Um, but I just don't want people to be cross with me or sad with me or, and I'll say, sorry, even if I don't know what I'm saying, sorry for, cause I just want everyone to be happy, you know, all these kind of things. And I think um, it, 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 it made me think and I was thinking about this in the summer and I was like my god I can't even be average at being bad at something I have to be the best at being the worst um, and that's why I started drawing so I started drawing a few years ago because I never did art never enjoyed it was never very good at it um, and um, just did it for the love of it and I will never forget going to a drawing class and um, I was at the height of my poetry career and I went to this drawing class and nobody knew who I was. And I was the worst person in there. The guy had to show me how to hold the pen. Because apparently when you're doing life drawing, you have to hold the pen like straight out okay. in front of you. Who knew? And then like saw me do like a couple of lines. And I thought it'd be like a movie. He'd be like, oh my God, Beth, your first life drawing class, you're so gifted. No, no such luck. He was just like, oh yeah, okay, I'll just leave you to it. Because you could see I was crap. And honestly, it was such a liberating experience. I was just a nobody Nobody cared about me. Nobody looked. And then I suddenly realized that actually being a bit boring, ordinary was actually really liberating because it ended up being a really brave drawing that because I knew it was going to be crap anyway. I just went for it. Yeah. Um, it's just so it's just hard. And I think um, especially with poetry, especially like sometimes I have people write to me, you know, and they send me their poems and they're so beautiful and they're so thoughtful and but they're not what you would they wouldn't go down well at a spoken word like they're not what you'd call like like raw talent or anything but but they've just put so much love into them and I think that's what spoken words lost its magic for a little bit because it used to just be a bunch of like really lost left out geeks getting together and sharing the fact that the world made them sad and I feel like now it's become quite cool um, and you have to be like really good and you have to do contests and I did a, I did a slam contest once and I won it and it was the worst possible outcome because then I was like well I can't ever do another one because I'm never going to win another one again I peaked too early I'm never doing it again I hate it I hate it you know and I was just like I just you know and then all of a sudden I get nice commissions from people or but don't use this word or don't talk too much about the body or can you not rhyme that with that or can you not say like cunt can you maybe say vagina or and all of a sudden you're like hang on a minute this was like my 
this was my like I'm a left out sad girl here's my heart and even this now is being edited and actually sometimes in order to have true creative freedom do you have to kind of do stuff that is a masterpiece or pleases the masses or whatever so that then you can tick that off so that then people give you the funding or the money or the freedom to go and do what you want to do I don't know I don't know but yeah I'm really sick of it and I always say when I'm teaching to the kids and they're like because of Instagram and social media and TikTok and if they don't get something straight away they've never they don't see anyone struggle Mm. or they just see the finished product all the time and so we've got these group of teenagers who I adore, but who are not resilient at all because they literally don't know. They're just like, can you imagine growing up if you could have gone on to like boy bands or whoever it is that you liked or and like watch their entire lives every single day? I remember like I remember liking 911 or something and cutting out a picture of Lee's trainers and being like, one day I might get trainers like Lee or something. Imagine that like. 25 times a day every single day from the age of like 10 I just you just might start thinking that everyone's good at stuff apart from you and I am really worried about our next generation of 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 children because they're growing up and they're only seeing like did you see Stormy Kardashian is that her last name she put up a picture Kim Kardashian put up a picture of her four-year-old's artwork have you seen this no no oh it's so interesting it's like a masterpiece it's like something that like Da Vinci could do right and like all it's done is just I, I doubt she did it maybe she did I don't know there's just so many kids underneath it with these sad faces being like she's four and she's already better than me and I just think oh my goodness I, you know darlings no one is this good at anything it's not real it's not real they probably yeah. got someone to do it and but they but they don't have that discerning eye yet they we grew up before it so we can like differentiate between reality and not, but that is their reality now. And it frightens me. Everything's a masterpiece on Instagram. And if it isn't, you can make it so on an editing app, you know? Yeah. That element of it's really scary how you can like manipulate the truth, but visually um, I kind of like, I suppose one thing that, cause I think about my kids being small and they're going to grow up in this world too. But I think, well, maybe when they get to that age, maybe by then there'll be a shift because social media is still quite new, right? And it just exploded and it didn't come with instructions. We all decided collectively how to use it and what we were going to, at one point, one person posted a picture of their dinner and everyone else went, I know this is going to be a good thing to do. Like it didn't, Facebook didn't tell us to start mm-hmm. doing that. So that's kind of all exploded at the moment and maybe it'll settle down. You know, maybe the, the, a generation down the line that hasn't access in these things will say, right, we're going to get control of this and we're going to like, you know, we're going to use it for good or we're going to, um, we're going to be better at it. I love the, your hope. The people. Well, I love your hope. Who You're knows? a better person than I am. I like, that's a lovely <laughs> thought. That's a lovely thought. I hope that happens. Yeah, maybe, maybe you just caught me on a good night. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but there you go. You mentioned before when you moved to, to London, Beth, um, to be a spoken word artist, spoken word poet was that, so that was a conscious decision that I'm going to, to pursue this. Kind of. It was a little bit of both. It was partly because I wanted to go and work with. Um, I so I spent the last ten years of my life working in really tough schools as a teacher. So I mean, like PRUs, you know, so where boys are sent for like um, they committed like violent sexual crimes, or and they're like one step away from from youth detention centres or prison. Um, and we turn their behaviour around. And I think for me, I knew I wanted to do that in Newham. I wanted to do that in Tower Hamlets or. And I think um, that's what I did. And at the same time, I wanted to build up a little bit of my spoken word career. But this was even before Kate Tempest or 
this was like so there would be there was spoken word London which was every other Wednesday um which now I mean I don't know about post-pandemic but you can't even get through the door whereas I remember going at the time when Pat Cash ran it and uh, there was like four of us and we'd like get a vodka red bull and cry and like read like stuff about our nan you know that's what it was like I remember one of my friends coming to see me in a show I was headlining a show um and they're the only person in the audience not the only person I knew they were just the only person because it was kind of like it was so niche and I was like so what is it like a poem but like do you rap are you a white rapper are you like a middle upper class Eminem and I'm like no and uh, I wish uh, and I think so for me but then what I what I found was as somebody with really in, like really bloody terrible mental health found it incredibly therapeutic so I had therapy on a Tuesday I do spoken word London on a Wednesday then I try and find somewhere on a Friday or a Saturday and I start sharing my stuff and as I realized that it was making me feel better made me feel really empowered so I started learning it off by heart and then people started staying behind to talk to me or asking if I could be in there magazine or featuring me or and all of a sudden I felt like because my job was tough you know I walk in I'm told to you know f off and I've seen everything everything you could possibly see and I I love those boys but you know they get shot they get killed it's such hard work and this felt like such a gentle space and so I think it kind of organically happened together I wasn't like I'm off to London to make my fortune you know with a little brown suitcase or anything Um, but I think I was like I'd like to work with children that are troubled because I know what it's like to be troubled um, and I would like to speak my poems out loud to people I think sometimes as well that belief in yourself is much easier when you're younger I don't think I could start now in my 30s I'd be like who wants to listen to me please but you know when you're 21 you're like everybody will want to hear this no one has heard this before and it's like no that's not true but you get the arrogance of youth I guess Whereas yeah, now I'm definitely. like, oh, please, guys, no one wants to hear your little poems about global warming. Get over yourself. You know, but when I was like 21, I was like, oh, this is a really profound thought about being a lesbian. They're going to love this. And I think um, I think I, I owe a lot to my like lack of self, um, lack of self-awareness back then. I was also much iller back then. I was pre-medicated. Uh, bipolar without medication is always fun. I remember once I, I collapsed, um, was really, really unwell, was unconscious was eventually roused got back from hospital uh oh can you hear me got back from hospital and um then I went and did a gig for a guy called Dion Power in a bus uh 246 bus in Hackney called Bus de Rhymes ah. uh, nice yeah and I headlined a gig on on the top of this bus for two hours and I'd literally just got out of hospital and even in um I did this in January actually I got out of hospital and went straight to do an interview for Frida and I was like it's the contrast for me of this kind of like my insides are really brutal my work life is really brutal and this was a place where like men would come up to me and tell me they like liked my hair and they weren't even trying to sleep with me they just actually liked my hair it was just such a, I'd never been around gentle men like that before. I'd never been around. And also as a gay woman as well, it's like huge in the gay community. It was really nice to meet other gay girls. Um, and it was really nice to meet other outsiders, but outsiders that are a bit before me. So like yeah. extrovert misfits. Yeah. Yeah. There is yeah. something lovely about that, that community, you know, that, yeah. But you have to find your own tribe in life, don't you? Right. And if that's a, uh... Yeah, But then I think also it can go the other way because then I also had a really bad experience from about the age of 26 to 28 where I found it incredibly isolating because it got very clicky, it got very cool, 
you know it was all this snapping finger stuff which I, I just don't I just don't know how I feel about that um and I think that there was quite a lot of it gets quite competitive and people are you know and I understand that people are looking for funding and all that kind of stuff but I think it got to the point where I was like this is exactly what I didn't want it to be I remember I had a really proud night once I was performing in um I was headlining in uh, a, a place in Shoreditch and um I think I was about 28 I was doing a poem and um, there'd been an open mic before, but a couple of people had missed the chance to sign up. And there was this girl that was really upset that she hadn't signed up at the front. And I realised one of my ex-students, who was now like 19 or 20, called Caitlin. Um, and Caitlin had come to watch me and to do a poem, but she hadn't had a chance to sign up. So in the middle of, I, I thought, I hope Caitlin's good, but I taught her English, so I knew she was a good English student. And I just, I gave the microphone to her. And I said, you take it, darling, you take it. And she was incredible. But I got so much backlash for it. And I remember thinking, like, guys, this is two pounds a ticket in like a little bar in short. Like, come on. You know what I mean? Um, and I think it got for me, it just got to this point where I was doing stuff like that and I was getting in trouble. And I was getting in trouble with all my commissions because it's just a bit too gay or a bit too out there or a bit too mental healthy or a bit too this. And I remember thinking, why can't there ever just be anything that's just like gentle and kind and fun? Why does everything have to turn into who knows who? And oh, there was this big hullabaloo one year in the spoken word scene because like only six people got picked for Glastonbury and they all knew each other. And I was like, I don't care. I can't. I can't do this. I'm just too, I'm just too depressed to even think about this. I just can't. And then, but then within that, I found a lot of really lovely people um but also quite a lot of broken people I have to say and my nickname in the community is Mama Beth because I, I like to look after especially um the younger ones and sort of take them under my wing and I'm always trying to give them opportunities and you know a platform to speak because I know if someone hadn't done that for me I wouldn't have been able to have done the things that I do uh but I think it's so much harder now as well would I have these young girls reach out to me and they just say I don't know what to do now because of COVID and I say I can't recommend you any nights nothing's on you know yeah, nothing yeah. and then I think how could I have been ungrateful for the click at least there was a click at least there was a community because at the moment I am really worried about what's going to happen to to the arts and to spoken word because I think it's I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to come out booming from this you know yeah definitely a lot of the, the creative elements of um of any sort of performance stuff is is struggling right yes yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a uh yeah something's something's got to change something's in the air something's happening that's for sure mm. yeah definitely mm. um when you mentioned your um mental health before beth you mentioned like pre and post diagnosis and i'm quite interested in so before diagnosis did you know that you were unwell yes of- oh my god yes 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 i was so 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 messed up from the minute i had a brain i think chemically like just i was about to say chemically a disappointment i need to talk about that in therapy chem just chemically wild like i'd have surges of adrenaline and like um deep despairing darks like brutal burning sadness at like five you know like i just but i think i thought everybody else felt like that i think the moment i first started taking medication that worked it took about four years to find ones that worked I honestly wake up, I talk about this quite a lot, I wake up and I was like, oh, this is what everyone feels like. This is why people are able to just go out and like raw dog at life. I feel great. I feel like, 
what is this word? And, and my friend was like, I think you feel resilient, Beth. And I was like, I feel like someone could call me a bitch and I wouldn't cry. This is incredible. Uh, and uh, But I remember saying this to someone and I said, it's a bit like I've been climbing the mountain with my friends my whole life and my feet really hurt. And I'm looking around at them and I'm going, Are your feet hurting, guys? And they're like, oh yeah, a bit. And I'm thinking, I'm in the most unbearable pain. What is going on? And then the day I got my meds, it was almost a bit like a revelation because I felt like we'd all sat down and taken our boots off. And I'd realised mine the whole time and had razor blades in and theirs hadn't, but I didn't know theirs hadn't. So yeah. I thought I wasn't as brave as them. Yeah. Turns out I was double brave. I had razor blades in my shoes. But until I knew what chemical equilibrium felt like, I just thought, why would I, why would I think anybody? Like I remember I thought when I was younger that everybody liked girls because I did and because you don't have the point of reference really. Um, and I just, I think I just thought everybody felt like that, but I wasn't brave enough. I wasn't strong enough. I didn't try hard enough. And I think that's definitely, uh, I, I, I did a TED talk on this about how it's, um, how I gaslight myself. Everyone talks about, don't let a man gaslight you. And I'm like, don't let yourself gaslight you. You know, I remember once having imposter syndrome about having imposter syndrome. So I didn't even feel like I was like good enough to have it. Um, but the way I speak to myself is just so abusive and so horrible. And that has been going on from an early age. And I think that's been my biggest battle is to try and find a way to undo her. Because even when I did realise the boots had blades in, I still now have to go through the damage that 24 years of blades did on my feet, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a combination as well of trauma and life experiences. And But I think chemically from day dot, I mean, when I was born, you can't tell like a little Phil Mitchell thumb um, a little pink thumb uh, but I think you can just see like I look at pictures of myself or and everyone's like laughing at parties or whatever and then I'm like I'm like just sort of in the corner with my like weird green eyes like staring daydreaming at like a spider cake or something I'm just a bit weird just a bit weird um, I'm really sad I remember being um not understanding that the meat on the plate was an animal from a farm and then with horror being like what the hell like what are people I just didn't understand what was going on half the time I just felt very frightened very afraid I think that daily life is brutal absolutely brutal like even like getting out of bed brutal uh, but I think that it, it's just the tube and and the competition and the exhaustion and the bills and it is it, relentless and it's terrifying and we always feel really scared that we're one paycheck away from losing it all and if we're true to ourselves we're not going to be able to finance anything and then we're going to end up living in a bed it just is a mess it's an absolute mess and I think for me all of those things got mixed up with my depression they just became homogenized so I didn't really know like what was existential despair which is normal um because literally the world is ending what is like a healthy reaction to be having like I don't want to be treated like this I don't want a rubbish job I don't want this and then what is um circumstantial depression so because of the things that happened to me and how I was treated and all of that and then what's the chemical and it's mm. like trying to untie and untangle all of those things and making sure they don't get mixed together because once the chemicals mixed with the existential you're really fucked because that's when it, you start thinking what on earth is the point it's on fire I'm just going to stay in bed all day. And then before you know it, six years has gone and your hair's a dreadlock. 
yeah that's it yeah I think people all um really really relate to that really really relate to it I always thought that I was just a little bit too soft for the world that's how I've always always felt no the world was too hard for you that's it maybe it was yeah and dishing out empathy for everyone whether they wanted it or not you know whether they deserved it or not feeling sorry for I'd drive past someone in the car who looks sad and think about it for a month you know like those those sorts of things and yeah, I kind of, I never knew I was poorly. I just thought I was a bit weird. So then you put on the front then, don't you? So like, well, I can't possibly show anyone that I'm weird. I have to fit in at all costs. And that don't is exhausting. Dating is harder for you though, because you're a boy. I just think it's so much harder to be like that and be a man. I really do. I've, I'm really passionate about this subject because I just, I feel like as a woman growing up, and when I felt emotional or sad, I'd get into bed with my friends, we'd cuddle up, talk about our feelings. I remember my best friend Vicky spoon feeding me ice cream when we were 18 as I cried. Or And I see my little brother go through depression and who has great friends. They're amazing. But like the language isn't there. It's just not the same. Like, you're right, mate. Everything okay, mate? Like, do you want to go to a football game, mate? Or uh, really caring and really loving. And But like, but this massive taboo of talking about your emotions because then you'll be seen as gay. Um, and even if you are gay, you don't want to be, it's so, it's so complicated. And I think for you, you know, when you say, I don't want to be seen as, um, I think like, so what I'm trying to say is as a girl, like I could say things like, oh, I kissed another girl or I cried in the loos or, and it's just no one bat an eyelid. But if you hear a boy say, I kissed another boy or I cried in the loos, you automatically have a picture in your head of what that boy is going to be like. And I feel like girls have more freedom to kind of be a bit, um, a bit mad. I think we have more, yeah, more freedom than boys and boys are expected to, you know, like if I'm crying over a breakup, I get empathy. If my twin brother was crying over a breakup, I would imagine most people in this life would be like, come on, mate, you're all right, mate. Come on, get your chin up, mate. Whereas I get, oh, darling, you know, and it's, I think having a twin brother is really interesting because you do get to see like different reactions to, and I do feel for you because I think, oh my God, like being a poetic empath in a man's body and you've got beard. <laughs> And everything, you must feel like an alien sometimes because it's like you look like this kind of like, you know, you're handsome, like tough man. And then, you know, you open your mouth and you're upset because you drove past someone a month ago that didn't have the right sandwich. That That is complex. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. I never really thought about it. And for me, it was like a self-stigma thing, right? So I put all this stigma on myself. It's like you say, gaslighting yourself because I'm not a particularly like manly man i've never been like oh yeah like pints birds and all that sort of stuff that's not really me so when people used to talk about masculinity i'd be well i'm not very masculine it doesn't really it doesn't apply to me you've got like a beard and mustache you like got broad shoulders you're wearing like a sports top like to me just like like manly yeah well uh, thank you i've never been have you got a sparkly sparkly skirt or something to surprise (laughs) that's it yeah i've got leggings yeah that's it but um yeah so but but then when i as i explored that more i think in like therapy and stuff then it was very much like well all right i might not be like a stereotypical bloke but there is still like patriarchal society doesn't serve men very well at all and there's still this whole like these roles about being a man and it might not have been stereotypical you know just because I don't like get drunk and fight people but I still want to be a good husband and I still want to be a good dad and I still you know so those sorts of things that comes under the masculinity umbrella as well you know and yeah I suppose it's I it's complicated for everyone isn't it but maybe in a way I think it's probably a good thing that you are creative and stuff because imagine if you were like this your personality was like this and you worked in banking well funny you should say that I did a, a a job that I 
hated for a long time and it played a huge part in me losing my way away from myself yeah and getting very very you know you so you know when you you put on so many different faces for so many different people you just forget who who you are in the middle right and um yeah and well you know who you are but you don't want to admit it and you just keep going la 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 i'm putting on different masks and (laughs) just waiting for it to crack and i'm telling you whoever's listening it will crack stop stop doing it stop yeah that's it and it kind of um you know it's like i like to describe it as death by a thousand paper cuts right when the, that crack does happen that's my it's... favorite phrase oh there you go look. whenever i say it the teenagers in my class go oh miss you say this every day and i'm like death by a thousand paper cuts guys like you know just because it's a tiny injury when it happens repeatedly it's enough to like get you get you killed over i'm telling you now and it's a horrible way to go i'd rather have my head cut off than just endure a tiny tiny like deep pain every day until my body can no longer continue that's it exactly right yeah that's it that exactly yeah so was that kind of you know you mentioned your your breakdown before beth was that kind of did it build up in that sort of way is that how that came about i think i've been ill my whole life with my with my uh face above the precipice not quite drowning and then i actually drowned so in a way i'm grateful for the experience because i couldn't have carried on much longer the way I was in the sense that I was just really impulsive and unwell and didn't look after myself and you know and I think in your 20s you can kind of get away with it a little bit and then it starts to get a bit irritating for everybody including yourself um but I had a string of events happen um some not nice things at my school some things happen in my personal life and then I had one of my students we we tried really hard to get him to leave a gang um and he meant a lot to me and he left the gang which was incredible and it was like one of the best moments for me of my teaching career and then about two weeks later he was killed by them so I think for me that was the beginning of it and then ironically the a year later when I did was able to go back to work so I'm not teaching anymore that same week my my best student was shot and so for me I think that's one of the reasons why I'm now up here in Aberdeen as well because I was like I can't do this anymore because I love those boys you're not supposed to but I do um but I think for me when when my student when my student Santino died I think the first student I think I felt a bit responsible and I just didn't know what to do with that and it felt quite lonely like I've got an incredible therapist she's she's just amazing and but I think it's beyond a lot of people and I think sometimes it's good to talk to people who've worked in like my partners worked in refugee camps or when you're working in trauma environments it's just it's so hard they've got the most wonderful friends but you know they say how was your day or it's really difficult you know because they'll tell me something really funny and interesting about their boss or whatever and I spent the day with a 12 year old pregnant girl who's carrying her dad's baby it's not really dinner party chat you know and like I don't I, I think I think it's really sad that we're not offered like supervision or therapy to do with work because also for me I get frustrated in therapy when I was like I don't want to be talking about work I want to be talking about like my upbringing or whatever but I feel like I've seen so much trauma just today um I think it started to weigh heavy on me and I think because I'm an empath it made me good at what I do like no kid ever felt unnoticed or unheard ever with me um but but like there's a cost isn't there and I suppose the cost was myself so after Santino was killed I think I just broke and I felt like it was my fault and I went to the GP in November 2019 and I said I don't want to be here anymore and he said but you've got such a lovely smile you should keep trying have you thought about playing badminton and I'll never forget it because I just walked out and I think it's one of the darkest moments of my life but it was also hilarious um because I remember thinking oh my god I'm gonna die and like 
there's nothing I can do. There's just nothing I can do. Nobody understands. Of course, people understand. But at the time when you're that ill, you're about to, sorry to be really crude, but you feel like you're about to top yourself. You go, finally, your friends, family, therapist convince you to go on your knees to beg for help. And you get that, you know, and I came home and I, I knew I was getting ill because I couldn't swallow properly. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. So I used to be a big girl. I don't know if you remember this, if you ever saw me before pre-breakdown, but I've lost five and a half stone wow. over the last two years. Yeah, yeah. And now sometimes people look at me really funny and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not kind of like the big fun girl anymore. I'm just an annoying fun girl. Um, but I am uh, not even not fun anymore. Uh, but I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't walk. I was crawling to the toilet. I mean, one day my... my um, uh, partner came home and I was watching TV. I've been watching it all day. I hadn't turned it on, but I didn't realize. I mean, I was that, I was just completely gone. Um, saw things coming out of the walls, sort of just lost. It. And I remember thinking, if this doesn't kill me, then I can never go back ever again to how I was. Because if I have to go through it again, and like, to be honest, I am quite surprised that I'm alive. Like, surprise. Um, I am quite surprised. And the only reason that I think I'm alive, apart from my incredible support network, is, is really sad. But I have to be honest with you. It's because I went private for my mental health care. And if I hadn't, I think I don't think I would have made it. So I had a private psychiatrist, a private therapist, private dietitian, private. And the difference. So, so they put me on a medication. At one point, I was on 26 pills a day, right? And if one wasn't working or something didn't happen, it's changed the next week. We try this, we try this. I can ring at midnight, I can ring at four, I can ring at two, I can ring whoever I want, whenever I want. They're always there. The team are there to support me, to believe in me. When I was at the NHS, the times before and I've been unwell, you know, it takes not their fault, but it takes three months to have a medication change. Three months. You know, I've had friends that have tried to kill themselves, um, have had a bed for the night. Uh, they've lived, they've had their stomachs pumped and they're sent home because there's no beds you know and if there's a choice between someone who's got capacity who tried to jump off a bridge but lived and then someone who hasn't so someone who maybe thinks they're Jesus and is eating off the floor they get the bed which I understand but also I'm like where does that leave high functioning depressives and I remember thinking when the, when the guy said to me about badminton I remember thinking it was the first time in my life I've ever experienced a terror like it and I suppose at least I was terrified but I thought oh my god I'm gonna die I'm gonna die I can't that was it like I can't he was my ticket you know and so we used my life savings because if I hadn't I wouldn't have life anyway so I didn't really have a choice um but I think uh I think yeah it was Santino's death was the catalyst and then I think it was that thing of realizing that I couldn't go to work anymore I couldn't move and then I thought oh my god I'm gonna lose my home I didn't care and then I kept trying to get my partner to leave me. We've been together for 11 years and I was begging her to leave me because I, I wanted her to leave me so I could go and end my life because I wanted to be like, um, I was never nasty or anything, but I just say, I really want you to go because I'm finding the fact that you're with me really claustrophobic and really selfish because it's making me have to stay here when I don't want to. And I remember crying out to somebody and saying, if I had locked in syndrome, right, you would, you would help me die. You would go and get a, a syringe right now and put me out of my misery but because you can't see it and because it's not degenerative I even wrote to a euthanasia clinic and I was like I can't carry on and they don't do it because um it's not degenerative and you there's the hope it could get better so so I got better right but I couldn't I that could not have happened that might not have happened so if you said to me Beth you're going to feel like this for 18 months and then you're going to wake up one day and one of the meds is going to work and you're going to be okay I could have sat it out 
but it was the not knowing whether or not anything would ever work. Would I be treatment resistant? Would I? And meanwhile, my hair's falling out, my teeth falling out. I'm shaking. I can't be awake for more than an hour. I forget to turn things on. I forget to get dressed. Like I'm really losing it. And then um, this, and then I, I was on a antidepressant called Cetrolim, which is really good. Thoroughly recommend. Um, but um, I'm, I'm, I, I Cetrolim is my uh, my weapon of choice. There you chef's go. kiss, chef's kiss. Um, but it, it wasn't cutting it for me. We tried so many different things. I was on all this medication. We took me all off it. Da da da. Then anyway, we put me on fluoxetine as well as Cetrolim, which is Prozac. Um, and within four days, I mean, how? frustrating and amazing but frustrating but like not having your leg your whole life and then someone being like uh babe it's here and screwing it on and you being like right I mean I'm really grateful for the leg but like I could have done with this about 20 years ago uh when the fluoxetine kicked in and it did take three days four days I think and I woke up with just tears in my eyes hungry and like I'd woken up from a nightmare and we're rattling around right and being like I cannot I cannot I cannot continue, but not knowing what to do just in case it got better. And I think that's the killer with depression is the hope. Um, Cause actually if you said to me, oh, this is it now, I would have without a shadow of a doubt, just gone and just done it straight away. It's like, there's no way I could have done that for longer than half a year, but it's the not knowing. It's like, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll take, they'll do a trial where they find magic mushrooms or I'll have electric convulsive therapy or maybe, and I remember they were trying to section me and I was saying, what are you going to do? Put me in a bloody room with a 23 year old nurse called Tracy, nothing wrong with that name, but you know, just as plucking her out my head, get me to do some coloring, drink a cup of tea, sedate me with diazepam, put me on a mattress that's got a plastic cover on it with people that are really unwell and send me home after three days because you don't know what to do with me. You don't have the answers either. It's not like, oh, when you're unwell, you get sectioned and you're sent to centre parks to heal. You're sent to somewhere worse than where you're bloody suffering in. You're sent to literally the loony bin, which is what it is. Um, you know, and I've had times where I've been in there about to be admitted and I'm surrounded by, you know, not in a nasty way, but men who are dangerous. And I'm at my most vulnerable. Uh, I haven't eaten for six days or whatever and I can't even get up. And I've got like, you know, a man walking in who's just come off the streets because he's psychotic. And it, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. Oh, my God. Even if I get the help I'm asking for and they give me everything that they have, it's still not going to help me because it's a broken system. It's a broken system. It's underfunded um, and nobody knows what to do, because really, actually, I think that being depressed is a normal reaction to the fact that the world is a terrible place. And actually, we're being missold a lie, being told we're the ones that are wrong when actually we're the ones having the appropriate reactions and no one wants to know. That's another, that's another conversation for maybe more like a controversial podcast. Um, but I just remember saying when they said, oh, wait, you know, we'll look after you, we'll get the crisis team involved. Have you ever run a crisis team? I haven't, no. So all they do, it's not in a nasty way at all. You know, I've trained to be a counsellor. I've been on the other side too, but what are they going to do? What do I think they're going to say to me? Some great truth? All they can say is run a bar, make a cup of tea and go for a walk around the block. And everyone jokes, they're like, oh, I don't want to ring the crisis team. They just tell me to have a cup of tea. They're hopeless. And I say, but also in their defence, what else can they say? What do you, do you think they're going to bring out some pearl of wisdom that suddenly makes the universe fall together for you? No one can help you. Literally, we're completely fucked. And so if you don't start loving yourself, even if you're surrounded by people that make you feel like a million dollars and tell you all the right things, if you hate yourself, it doesn't work anyway. Like you could tell me I was the most beautiful girl in the world with the most wonderful heart. And when I'm ill, I just be like, don't patronize me, stop taking the piss. I just wouldn't, it just wouldn't land at all. It would just be rubbish to me. It would just be like static noise. And so I keep saying like, this is an inside job. But then I also say, I say this to my teenagers, 
how are you supposed to know how to love yourself if you haven't been loved? Like, I wouldn't send a kid to France and say, okay, baby, you've been there for two days, so how's your French coming along? The same way, I don't think that just because you have a birthday, you should be expected to learn how to behave like an adult. Because you're not, there's no, you can't, you have to learn relationally to be shown unconditional love or positive regard and have these things modeled for you so that you're able to do it for yourself. Because, you know, like I grew up in a house where achievement's really prized. And I just never occurred to me that there would be any other way of thinking. I didn't know I was thinking wrong because it was the only way I thought. Um, yeah. And so I think I needed to be surrounded by people that treated me with compassion and empathy not necessarily that told me amazingly wise things, but that would be like, Beth, um, your head's bleeding. Are you okay? We've made you a casserole. Do you want to come in? And loved me at my maddest, made me feel less monstrous. So I think like, I always try and say this to the kids and I'm like, don't worry if you don't know how to be angry or you don't know how to forgive someone or you don't know how to calm down when you're crying. It's because no one's shown you. And it's like, I say, I feel really stupid at the moment. I'm doing house insurance. I don't understand it at all. So it's me, what's your roof made out of? I don't know. I'm not a stonemason. I'm like, you know, like slate. I don't know. I went out and asked it, but it didn't reply because it's a roof, so it doesn't talk. And then they asked me what the locks were. And I said, they're really pretty. And they were like, no, Beth, you need to say what type they are. Um, but I was thinking, and I felt so stupid. And I was like, no, this is exactly what I say to my teens. It's like, no one showed me how to do this. No one showed me how to do taxes and how to do, not not that, I'm, well, actually I am complaining because I'm really pissed off. I know how to do Pythagoras' theorem. I don't know how to do my taxes. Um, and I didn't know that mortgage was Latin for death promise. Uh, but I think, um, I think for me, it's just this thing of being like, basically I think in life we're so ashamed that we're shit at things right that we blame ourselves when actually it's because no one's shown us but no one will say that because I'm like oh everybody else seems to know how to do their home insurance form so I'm just going to hate myself for the fact that I can't do it and actually it's because no one's shown me how am I supposed to know and I think the same applies for the way that you talk to yourself if I have like my mum is notoriously from that generation no complaints about her but the boomer woman generation of always on a diet not liking who they are you know like oh do I look all right in this all those kinds of things so for me not that it, not that it was a bad thing but I didn't I didn't know how to look at like body positivity or how to look myself in the mirror and be like yeah girl your roles are out but you're fucking fabulous or I, because I've never seen it in action and so that's what I try and do now for the young people. I try and model stuff for them. Like even when they call me the most disgusting names or I'll just sit there and I say, do you know what? Like, I understand that you're angry, but I'm not scared of your anger. And I don't want you to be scared of it either because we'll get through this together. Like teaching them skills to how to just, how to be with, how to be bored, how to be angry, how to be annoyed, how to be irritated, all these things, but they're not being taught. And I don't know why they're not being taught it. And at least if they were being taught politics or and whatever then that would be great. But they're doing that in Eton, but they don't do it in our normal schools. And yeah. it just makes me sad. So I'm like, you're just trying to bring out a cohort of young people who are obedient members of society who will go and work in your offices and not question too much. And that just breaks my heart. It yeah, breaks my heart. It. It's the treadmill, isn't it? The treadmill of life. And I think if you go back to when people are young enough and we can do this, we can show these things, we can experience our emotions naturally. Well, that's as children, that's when we get told to, you know, to sit still and to not fidget and to not say those things. And if you say, I don't really want to do that, then, you know, someone might say to you, yeah, you'll be fine. Go on. You know, and it's like, 
you know, forcing people to do things that they really don't want to do. And, um, you know, it, it is, you just don't feel seen, right? You, as a yeah. child, if you learn that not to feel seen, then you'll know, you'll, you'll, how do you, how do you do, how do you make that happen as an adult? How do you oh, learn yeah. how to hear nice things? And yeah. I remember talking to a teacher at my last school I worked at in East London where he was a math teacher and he was really angry with this group of year eight girls and he was really shouting in their face. And I had a word with him and he wasn't happy about it. But I just said, look, mate, you're a 34 year old man. They're 11 or 12. Like That was really scary. And I think people forget that, like, it's really funny, isn't it? Like they would he would never speak to an adult like that. And I almost want to say to him, I'd rather you spoke to me like that than them. Because I've got the emotional skills and capability. But they now think that what is that? Is that how men can speak to them? Is that normalized for them now? They're a bit scared of you and they now suddenly respect you more because you screamed in their faces. I don't want those girls learning that, learning that that's the way that things get done around here because then they're going to go home and speak to someone in their family like that because they think that's how authority works. And you're failing our children when you do this. Yeah. And everyone's just me on the snowflake and soft and all of this and say, well, actually, I think, um, I think whenever someone calls me a snowflake, I think I really try and think, it's because they're scared because they don't want to know things and they don't want to face things. And it's just easier to say I'm too soft or I'm too much or, you know, rather than they're not enough or they're too hard. Yeah. It's, um, it's easier to stay plugged into the matrix, isn't it? Than to go full Neo. And, oh my and God. Do you, remember and... the day? Do you remember the day when you wake up from the matrix? We've all got it. The day you wake up, right. And you think, no, 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 no. Back to sleep. No, 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 no. And you suddenly realize that no matter what you do, no matter how many drugs you take, how many drinks you drink and how many women you sleep with, you cannot go back to sleep when you're awake. You are fucked. That is it. That's it. I, I mean, I think that's a huge factor in um, in mental health. Right. When the, yeah, yeah. when how you see the world changes and you're not quite sure how to negotiate the new world, but, you know, you can't go back to the old one, you know, and I think that that sometimes unsettles people's, um, you know, mm. like emotional well-being, you know, plays a part in plays a part in that stuff so I think how something um I talk about in my last poem I just I wrote my first poem since being ill a couple of weeks ago on healing about healing and I was saying actually I have quite a complicated relationship with mental health because there are parts of it I miss and I say this in a poem I say I miss the way that being ill excused me from participating in a society I don't believe in I miss that it meant that um my I lost so much weight that my outsides matched my insides I literally looked as fucked up as I felt which was amazing because normally in depression my voice has to do the asking because my body doesn't and then I feel like I'm just not being brave and it was so great to lose all this weight in a really messed up way because I didn't even need to say I was sad my body did the talking for me so then people thought weirdly I was braver because I didn't have to walk into the room and say I'm, I'm still really unwell because they could just see so I could be like, oh, I'm all right. And I've got to be tough because my body could talk for me. Yeah. Um, and I was saying, and I miss that. I miss um, uh, the way that um, people treated me a, a lot more gently and tenderly. Uh, and um, I miss um, some of the maladaptive coping mechanisms that I had. I miss sometimes smoking. I miss um, overeating. Uh, I miss maladaptive daydreaming because those were my best friends for years of my life. Like, and now I know I can't turn back to them. And I remember saying to my therapist crying, I was going, I don't know how to be sunshine. I only know how to be a moon, a miserable moon. I was like, I don't know what my identity is if I'm not depressed. I say it's like my bathroom, my whole life's been broken, right? And the toilet has been full of shit. And my whole life, I'm like, oh my God, my toilet is such a mess. My toilet's my depression. And finally we've mended it, right? 
shut the lid and I should be really happy. But what's happened is it's made, I've looked around the rest of my bathroom and seen how much work it needs. And I'm just like, oh, it was easier just looking at the toilet rather than having to face the fact that I've cracked the mirror, the tiles are covered in mold. And because I'm learning things about myself that I was always too depressed to learn, things I don't like about myself, like I'm impatient. I'm really impatient. I'm, I rush things. Uh, I experienced an emotion for the first time about six months ago, which I found out since was disappointment and rejection. Whereas before, I'd just be like, fuck this, the world's disgusting. I don't want to be here anymore. Whereas now I know I'm going to live, so I've got to deal with it. And I don't have, I feel like my muscles have atrophied. Like I don't have the skills. And I say this about being a lesbian. I'm always like, oh, you know, we're a bit late because your first love, first kiss behind the bike shed, first boyfriend, all of that is when you were 13, 14, 15, 16. And for us, it's 22, 23, 24, 25. So we're a bit behind. And I say sometimes I feel like that with, with regular emotions. I know how to experience ecstasy and terror. Fine, no problem. That's, you know, my bread and butter. But give me emotions like frustration or sadness that's not too deep but just twinging or I have no idea how to sit with them or hold them at all at all because because I've just my whole life I've been looking at this shitty toilet basically and now it's now it's fixed I kind of miss my toilet no I don't no I don't no I don't miss it but I must miss it because I just said that I'll talk about that in therapy and then we'll have another chat in a few weeks yeah and see how you're getting on yeah but I thought you know that makes a lot of sense i kind of see it like um being a zoo animal and then getting released into the wild and being like well it was shit in that zoo but crikey it's a bit dangerous out here you know, <laughs> you kind you of, know uh... that is the perfect analogy for leaving university but you're like <laughs> or school you know you're like oh shit in there oh my god it's shit out here and you realize wherever you go you're fucked take yourself clean kids you know <laughs> <laughs> can we um I'd, I'd really like to talk a little bit about your your ted talk beth as well because that's kind of how i i found out about you and um you're specifically the in your poem you mentioned the six things that particularly helped you yeah and there was a few reasons why i was really taken with with the whole thing but those six things in particular i really liked because i think if you did a if you went out in the street and did a survey and said to people, name six things that are, uh, you know, good for mental health, I think most people would say the same six things and six things. And this, it would probably, the list would look very similar to the list that you talk about that your doctor gave you. Yeah. And the more people I speak to on this podcast and the more I've explored some ideas about mental well-being and stuff like that, it throws up a lot of topics that I had no idea that I needed to pay more attention to or things that I could do differently mm. and you know there's this so mental health is so multifaceted and your six things were they were like unusual and they shouldn't be you know and, uh, also, I think sometimes when I'm really sad good advice for me the best advice I get is when it's specific so if someone says you know I don't know like you just got to practice positive thinking no if someone says to me at 6.01 every day, you must step to your mirror, say this phrase and then sit down for five minutes. That I can do, you know, because it's like it's a specific instruction. Um, and I think depression can make you quite submissive anyway, because you just you end up resigning to it. So actually, sometimes it's really useful to have these little pieces of advice that are very concrete and quite practical, like go for a walk for five minutes around the block. We'll put a coat on, then come in, take the coat off and don't think about it. 
it's easier for me to process than someone going just exercise it's too broad it's too, broad. It's too big isn't it yeah, yeah. it's too yeah. it's too too big and I think a lot of the things that are good for maintaining good mental health like exercise is great for me now I'm in a good place like I love exercise and it keeps me ticking over but when I wasn't well yeah it was it was too big you know it's like yeah, go for like, a run oh, it's like, well, go for a run and I was like I literally can't put my sock on without crying yeah. I'm, I'm not safe around busy roads like I, I, I can't God, no. do it yeah that's the irony, that's the irony of, of the whole irony of mental health isn't it is that the things that make you better are the things that your mental health issue doesn't let you do that's mm. a horrible paradox which is like basically if you looked after yourself then you would feel a lot better but you can't look after yourself because you're too well so you fuck it's yeah. yeah it's like your brain said you had your chance <laughs> you had yeah, your chance yeah. to look after yourself and well you know yeah and this is yeah. why i say you know in the ted talk you know my favorite part of it was when i talk about i wish i went purple because for me it's like when you can see something it's just so different because like if you came to me you know if you were working for me and you came into school one day and you were purple and i said you know you're all right darling and you went yeah no i'm fine i'm fine i would just go no you're not you're purple come here have a cuddle and when you need to go home you can't be in this purple look there's a there's a category here and you're way past it you're not allowed in the building and you would be blameless absolutely blameless not your fault it's purple you can't control purple can you but it's because we can't bloody see it that's what it is it just gets me every single day I think about it and I'm like how good would it be though when people are just like oh my god have you seen she went running she wrote a book she spent loads of time with her friends. She went to a spa, but the purple just didn't come off. So she did everything she could. So naturally now, of course, we're looking after her because the poor thing, you know, wouldn't it just be amazing to see it? I just, honestly, I just can't, I think about it all the time. Like, and I just, because you also then wouldn't need to go through the embarrassment of asking because a lot of other illnesses, and this is why I do say it's very messed up, but, but it's an honest truth that losing weight was very useful for me during this time because people just would look at me and look at my stats and be like she's not well and I remember there's been times in my life where I think I've probably actually been iller but because I was in a bigger body or you can't see it people can't and I think also people like that image of the mentally unwell girl that's like really thin with like eyeliner and rather than most of my mentally unwell dates which is just me eating like cheesy pasta like really overweight using the crumbs in my bed as an exfoliation mitt you know it's like I just it's not glamorous it's not pretty it's not beautiful and I think a lot of mental health professionals are not interested in it unless it looks like that and so for me I think there's something that I talk about you know see it's just I think it's just so unfair we don't go purple and so the only thing that I could take away from from what happened to me was I was just trying to think of the things that kept me alive not the things that made me thrive thriving was not an option like no I mean I, I crawled to the toilet. Oh, no, this girl was not going to thrive. But what could I do that meant I wouldn't die? You know? Um, and yeah, and that's where I came up with that little list of six. Um, and I think that actually what I should have said, but I didn't, but I know for next time, is maybe take three of mine and find three of your own. Because it will, it will be individual. Because actually for some people, you know there'll be something really niche like for me like I love water I love running water and I love sitting in the bathroom I can't believe I'm telling you this I love sitting in the bathroom on the floor with the taps running my back against the bath I just close my eyes and I just the noise the how fucking random is that I literally sat on a tiny bathroom floor in the suburbs 
with the taps running and I could be in there for four hours, totally away from water. Um, but I think that for me is Oh, your sound's just dropped off there, Beth. Oh, did you hear me? I, I just missed a little bit at the end there. Yeah, did you fumble go over the over the mic or something? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just saying for me, be, being around moving water, I wrote my whole book in the spectator gallery of the local swimming pool. Wow. Um, lucky I'm not a man or I would have been kicked out for being a perp, wouldn't I? Um, but I um, that for me is something that's quite personal and would not work for many people. Um, I say something about drinking a fizzy drink in the shower. Have you ever done it? It's just like sublime. I like to sit on the floor of the shower and have a Lucasade. It's amazing. It's like drinking stars. Um, turn all the lights out. Imagine you're in a spa. That's the last thing I say in the talk. And I'm like, it's really niche, but like, it doesn't take much to go to the shop, spend £1.50 on Lucasade, come home, put the shower on, turn the light out, get in. And all of a sudden you can feel like you're on the moon. And sometimes I just wish we could jump out our skin, swap for two weeks, Freaky Friday. I take a holiday in you. You take a holiday in me. Two weeks away from ourselves, go back to each other, back to our families, back to ourselves. Lovely jubbly. But that's the worst part. You cannot leave your skin. You know, and I say when I go on holiday, I just get so upset because I get there and I realize I'm just the same twat, but it's hotter. It's just so disappointing. I was always thinking I'm going to be this like different person who's going to like have like, beautiful skin and like be really cheerful and neither of those things happen and I think um and I think for me I just I always wanted um and I'm thinking about doing it next actually not a handbook per se but I just wanted someone to just tell me specific things that work for them you know like just that are really niche or like one of my friends it doesn't work for me because I've got OCD but she just really liked carrying glitter and putting it everywhere she went like for me personally a nightmare and just makes me itch for the hoover for her joy you know, um, one of my friends likes to hoover the lawn. You do you, babe. I don't think it's that healthy, but I've seen how how happy she looks after it. And, you know, I don't think that most things we do in life are that healthy. So if you want to hoover your lawn, darlings, go hoover it, you know? That's it, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, in life we don't do enough of what makes us happy, right? And that's sometimes what makes us sad. Do you know what makes me life? really happy? I'm, I'm going to confess it. Do you know what makes me really, really happy more than anything in the world is doing absolutely nothing honestly I'm so happy doing nothing I'm so happy not achieving I love Holby City I love eating roast potatoes I love sitting on the sofa reading trashy magazines playing Candy Crush Saga I love doing nothing and I'm so sick of like you know all this time people are like oh we're going to go to the Tate and then we're going for a talk at 10 and then we're going for like feminist politics over coffee and I'm like I literally just want to watch the simpsons and eat cheese and i've been made to feel ashamed of that for so long and i'm like actually hang on a minute i'm a really deep thinker i i think all the time i it makes sense that i need that other side that i'm drawn to kids programs cartoons snuggling daydreaming because there has to be another side to this deep thinking otherwise i drive myself insane yeah so it's like trying off. to make yeah. space for that child as well but also oh, the mate. child not, not being that interesting my child likes to watch recess and rugrats and like you know i don't know like eat crap and i and that has to be okay it's not always about like am i going to some healing reiki class or because actually some things you know what's a really healing emotion for me personally might not be for anyone for everyone but is nostalgia um not not like ex-boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever but i mean like you know rugrats and like um i had a animal crackers the other day you know the chocolate covered little biscuits yeah, yeah, and yeah. i got some ice gems they were they weren't very nice but like the chalky it just brought me back somewhere 
Um, nostalgia is really comforting for me. And growing up, the television was a great friend of mine. She really was. Like, I used to love her on a Saturday morning. And I'll never forget when um, uh, SMTV came out and there was like cat and 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 deck and it was just kind of mind-blowing that because these things didn't exist before and they were my friends and I escaped through them I escaped through art attack and morph and and so for me like you know even last year I I did a talk on how important it is that if if you're in a shop and you want a cuddly toy or whatever just get it like who no one cares and if anyone comes over it's on your bed say it's from your childhood if you're that embarrassed or that belongs to your little brother like just do what you need to do that makes you feel better because actually all anyone cares about really at the end of the day is themselves they're not looking at you I don't think I've ever looked at my friend in a bikini and judged her body or looked at her bed and judged her bear but my god I've like looked at my ear and been like god you're too low or I've looked at like I've looked at my bed and been like oh a toy you're 34 and I'm just like oh do you know what yeah a toy I'm 34 and I'm much better than a lot of 34 year olds I know that have no toys but treat people like shit so there you go I've got yeah. it that's it go go easy I'm on boring. yourself I like, yeah. TV. I like cheese and I like my teddy bear goodbye oh, mate yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think that was better than your TED talk so if you get to do another one there you go there's your there's your finishing uh you finishing mark job done yeah that was Except awesome teddy bear. yeah that's best. yeah and what if someone was- if someone does come into your room and judge your teddy on the bed you shouldn't be letting them into your bloody bedroom anyway regardless exactly who right. it is and also then i need to have a therapy session which is why do i care what not very nice people think of me anyway yeah that's a yeah there you go that's part of the, the human the human condition yeah really yeah there's one more specific thing i wanted to ask you about beth just before we wrap up because the, the the message always around mental health is talking about it. It's something I spend a lot of time doing myself, and I, I know you do too. And you write about it and stuff like that. And one of your um one of your poems has been viewed like over five million times. How we talk about talking all the time. We never talk about how hard talking is. We never talk about sometimes after you talk, you feel like shit afterwards. You know what? The message is always about talking. We never talk about talking early. We always talk about talking when the wheels come off and everything but how does it work for you you know when you've got a video that's been seen five million times you know like after when you come on a podcast and we talk openly like this you know do you know honestly like I really think that bravery and courage and is subjective because for me talking doesn't feel that brave not talking does actually um staying quiet for terror um the the burning from not opening my mouth is far worse than the fallout of five million people knowing I'm a massive lesbian you know um and so the same way how for me jumping out of a plane wouldn't be brave because I'm not scared of um heights but for my dad who's scared of heights jumping out of a plane would be you know it's just for me talking has never really been something I need to find courage to do because also as well I think being as messed up as I am everyone knew anyway it's not like it was this I'm never gonna be one of those people where someone goes oh what a surprise she got depressed you'd never think it of her would you everyone thinks it of me you know it's gonna happen anyway so I think for me um talking about it I felt like it was kind of all I had and I remember being told constantly growing up at school and you know no one wants to hear it no one cares this is gonna get you anywhere you know and actually people do want to hear it and they do care and actually even if they don't want to hear it I'm still going to tell it anyway because it's my it's it's all I have really and I think for me it would have been really good growing up to have had somebody in the LGBT community who was high functioning who worked 
who you know was not like punky or anything like that was the kind of mainstream because I am quite boring quite mainstream um I'm not that like I'm not a cool queer girl I'm not like alternative I'm not you know I just just you know I'm quite just like eating chips and I think um and I think for me I could have really done with someone just being visible and there just wasn't that so that was my main driving force in the beginning of being like it'd be really great if a little lonely 12 year old gay girl could watch this video and be like okay life's going to be cool one day but I even know when I was 12 I would have watched a video like that and been like yeah but it won't be for me because it never is for me it's always for other people um but yeah so I think you know talking and again as a woman uh it is easier I think as well um but I think also something I've learned about is something that's been a really useful tool that my therapist taught me is about being mindful who you share your joy with not just your pain so actually I'm more guarded about that so like, for example, if you want me to talk about the worst moments of my life, that's OK. But I think I need to be really careful about when I have good news or I'm really happy who I share that with, because a lot of people cannot be what I need them to be in that moment. Everyone talks about, oh, can you be there for them in their darkest times? I'm like, yeah, but can you be there for them in the light? You know, that's the skill. Like, can I be crying with a joy that you've announced that you're pregnant or do I turn up to your birthday at three in the morning because I've flown over because I just want to see your face and kiss it you know that that to me is is showing up and I think for me um staying uh talking about things and everything uh, and talking about the darkness is one thing but but I've learned the hard way you know there are some people I'll ring and I say I got this job and they make me feel like crap or I I won this poetry contest and they don't and I think that is the is the harder thing who I talk to about my successes about my accomplishments about I feel like that for me makes me more vulnerable than and also there's this thing now where if you talk about your accomplishments not only do you feel arrogant but you feel like God will punish you by taking away everything you've ever achieved if you actually take a moment to celebrate that you've achieved something so you better not be too happy with yourself because that will mean that you know, you'll lose your house and your job tomorrow is that kind of thing but yeah I'm perfectly happy to sit with how sad I am for years but I won't let myself feel happiness. And I just, and so, yeah, I think for me talking, um, talking for me, I think I've probably in therapy for seven years, just talked. I don't think we even did therapy. I think we just, I just ranted. I just needed to talk. And I think it's always been an easy thing for me. I think what's been hard for me is working out that some of the things that I say um, have a really profound positive impact on people. But some of the things I say, people really don't like. People are really homophobic. You know, I had a real homophobic abuse after that video, called a faggot, told I was going to burn in hell, you know, um, told that I was disgusting, maybe Jesus of Nazareth, people tell up outside my school. Um, you know, you're putting yourself out there. And I would say, actually, for me, I found it a harder experience being honest about being gay more so than I have about being depressed. Because I actually think nine times out of 10, if your audience is under 50, they get it and they have it too. I really mm. believe that. I very rarely encounter anyone in their 30s, 40s, 20s who goes, oh my God, really? That's just so unusual. I just don't know any, everybody, even after like as mainstream as Caroline Flack with Love Island. And I just think that actually the language exists now. And I think it's just in the older generation where they're like, oh, that's very brave that you would get up and talk about how sad you are. And I'm like, I say this to my, to my nan. I'm like, nanny, everyone's sad now, nan. Everyone is sad. Everyone under the age of 40 has no idea what they're doing, can't afford to buy a house, but secretly wants one, but doesn't want to admit that they want one because it's really boring to want one. And um, no one knows what they're doing. And we're all really sad. And I think actually what's harder to talk about is um, 
what's going right for us, how to celebrate our achievements, how to celebrate what we've done well, or like to say to you, do you know what? I think I look really nice today. I love my outfit or, oh my God. I mean, even then just saying it made me like shudder. <laughs> but I can say to you, I can definitely say to you, oh, hi darling, how are you? I wish I was dead. I can't bear this. Also, I think it's the way I communicate about it because I think a lot of the time I, I talked about my mental health as though it was the funniest thing in the world because it is quite funny. But I think what happened then was it created a massive barrier because um, I became a bit like a comic, I suppose, which is like I'm telling you really funny stories that are not funny at all. I've just made them funny because I'm good with words. They're actually really sad and horrific and horrible. But I've got a good punchline and you're laughing. And that makes me, that gives me my dopamine for 20 seconds, you know? Yeah, but then yeah, I, yeah. I go home and I feel like, so you can still talk about unhappy stuff in a way that is in, incredibly um, <laughs> guarded and not intimate through, for example, poetry. How, how vulnerable really is the fact that I'm reading to you how sad I was through the metrics of rhyme, rehearsal and performance? How vulnerable is that really? Not that vulnerable. Vulnerability is if I'm lying on your lap at three o'clock in the morning with mascara down my chin and you're like feeding me a cracker and me talking about how much, I don't know, I was really upset that my tortoise died when I was six. That's vulnerability. Getting up in front of a stage and saying I'm sad and rhyming it is, is something else. It's performative vulnerability, which is still vulnerability, but it's, it's in my control. Mm. I control yeah. it and therefore it's by nature by its nature it's not um and I think I I really mistook that my whole life and made a very fatal error of believing that because I was going up on a stage I had vulnerability covered um but there's a difference between being looked at and being seen mm. and I think being looked at is something I love teaching you're looked at in the classroom performing you're looked at but then someone might like after a gig give me a proper deep eye stare over a cigarette and I'll run ten toes, you know. I don't want to be doing that. Like yeah. I can't. I can't. You know. You can watch me perform my sadness, or you can go away. I can't do this kind of actually talking about it with you when it's not a poem. So I had to get used to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you find it? Yeah, I mean that. I relate to that a lot. Yeah, I always. I'm really good when I've got clearly defined roles. You know, so if oh, you, I love a role. Yeah, a role. so that if I'm in control, you know, and if I'm, you know, bit like when I'm in my work, I can be super confident. I can stand up in front of a lot of people. I don't really need to practice it to do that. You know, I can do these sorts of things. But if you said to me, "Oh, me and a few mates are going for dinner. Do you fancy coming along?" <laughs> I could. Yeah. Oh, that'd be hard for me. That'd be a long night having a conversation with a stranger while eating a pizza. That would be really, really tough, you know. And I think there's I um, hold it. So I can do that at a wedding. I can go and chat to somebody for ten minutes, have a great chat, yeah, and then I'll pop out for a fag and go and speak to somebody else. Or that's fine. Ten minutes is fine. It's the stamina of vulnerability, longevity. So like, I got to sit here with you, a stranger, and have a pizza. That's like forty-five minutes. I have to keep this for 45 minutes. And that terrifies me. Mm. You know, we've all got the different things that ter that terrify us. I think um, as well, something that um, I don't really mind if someone says that they don't think that um, I, I'm uh, talented or they, they hate my work or they don't like my stories or poems. That's fine because it's my craft. But I think something that has been really hard is when people go, yeah, but were you that ill or were you that sad? And they try and, you know, gaslight you a little bit. But I think as I've got older, I've got a lot better at knowing what my authentic experience is. And I don't think I could have dealt with my videos going viral. Like even 
it's not the same, but I did an interview in January that got over a hundred thousand views. And, and I and I suddenly had hundreds of messages from people who didn't want to be here anymore because it was about being depressed. It's an interview for Frida. And, um, and I was thinking, they're being so brave reaching out to me. Like, I, I, can't, I can't reply to any of them because it's a legal lawsuit waiting to happen. But um, I remember thinking, they're so brave reaching out to me. But like, sometimes it's frightening just because I talk that I know the answers. Because like, sometimes I think there's this thing where you're like, oh my God, this girl's gone through it and she's got better. She can help me. I'll write to her. And I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing either. Like, I'm just trying to tell you the things I've learned along the way to see if it can help you because it would have helped me if I'd known these things um but sometimes I think I get worried about the fact I talk so much I sound like I'm an authority on it sometimes and I'm not I'm just as lost as everybody else I just I'm just maybe um less got uh I'm just a bit shameless just like oh well I'm messed up who wants to hear about it this man at the bus stop we can talk um you know I just I think I just I think actually in a way I've been lucky to be as ill as I've been because I, I went beyond what society expects I think once you crack when you're really unwell things you, you kind of almost get a freedom because mm. you're so ill nothing really matters anymore you're like oh, I'll just go in and like I don't know sing in the middle of a coffee shop or something who cares I don't not that I've done that but you know it's just that thing of being like I'm so beyond it all now. I don't care anymore. And I think that can make you brave and it can also make you stupid. And I have done plenty of things where I've been way too open, you know, inappropriately open or talk, giving people my power. And then, you know, but I feel like when it's performative, when it's on the stage, it's like my Polly Pockets I talked about at the beginning. I'm in control of how you see my narrative. Um, so actually, when people think I'm really brave and free, I say to them, actually, I'm just incredibly controlling and really want people to think highly of me. So I polish my pain and give it to you in a gemstone in the hope that you'll love me in a way I'll never love myself. So there you go. Oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that was lovely. That was a what a fantastic way of, of saying it, mate. What about well, that was brilliant. And just to take us home, Beth, what's next, man? Are you tucked up in Scotland writing? I've got visions of you up in the Scottish wilderness in a hut with a typewriter and you know that romantic writer oh, out in the typewriter. wilderness. I think you said yeah. a tie bride. I was like, oh, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like no, I don't have a tie bride, but you can send one if you want. Um, and what, that, what, that famous writing cliche of uh, <laughs> going to Scotland with your, with your tie bride. Yeah, we've all heard, uh, I'm sure Bukowski did that, didn't he? Um, what's next for me I'm writing a book um, uh, which is um, it's called The Empathy Pill it's about a man that once a month for 12 months takes a pill that gives him each of his friends illnesses for the month so like one month he has cancer one month he has schizophrenia one month he has and we follow his you know this non-empathic man through his journey of experiencing invisible illnesses basically wow Um, so that's a laugh Um, doing that (laughs) Um, I'm doing, um, I do quite a lot of stuff for uh, still with spoken word, you know, I'm doing, um, I do a lot of talks on being out at work, because that's an interesting conversation, because sometimes you don't want to be out at work, because you're private, you want to do your job, then also, do you have to be out because some poor kid needs it, and, you know, I talk a lot about the kind of balance between getting that right, so I'm doing some talks for Nationwide about that, Um, I have a couple of um, videos coming up and being painted by an artist for the National Portrait Gallery is doing uh, 20 poets, which would be nice. Um, But mainly, if I'm honest with you, um, I got a job today at local school, but I don't start for six weeks. So I'm just going to continue living retired life, um, 34-year-old retired life. And I'm just going to continue daydreaming in potatoes um, 
writing my little empathy pill book and my little job I got is five minutes down the road and go look after the teenagers in the day come home write my little stories got no plans to party no plans to socialize no plans to make any friends can't do it anymore can't be bothered um and just sort of sit happily in a coffee shop and stare at a wall for the next five years of my life I think I'm recovering from my life I'm in recovery I'm in rehab up here with my Thai bride in the Hebrides <laughs> with loads of cheese <laughs> yeah what oh, about mate. you um yeah I, I'm just uh ticking over ticking over with life yeah um just recording more podcasts and uh yeah doing a live live recording for charity coming up next month that's oh, gonna be nice. sick yeah doing a, a, an audience I'll send um, me the link oh mate yeah yeah and uh yeah got that coming up recording be christmas in this house soon and uh yeah i'll love that to worry about so christmas is super fun yeah man it's all right yeah it's nice i'm uh i'm happy man life's good life's really really good yeah oh i'm really i'm really glad thank you i'm glad glad that we're both look look at us sharing our joy with each other that's i know yeah i know (laughs) when someone says to you how are you and you go i'm really good and they look at you like what? And I'm like, I know, but I, I'm really I good. I actually am. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's celebrate <laughs> it. Close it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Done now. Tomorrow's going to be shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, that was absolutely brilliant. I enjoyed myself so much. Thank you, Beth, for your time. That was You're absolutely welcome. wicked. Absolutely it was lovely. Wicked. It was so easy and lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. proper mental podcast please like and subscribe the space time